The following program is sponsored by Grant Stern. This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. Well, if you're driving and stuck in traffic tonight, and believe me, it's Monday, you probably are, kick those shoes off, relax, you need to listen to what is going to come on our program in the next hour because it affects every single one of you that lives in Miami-Dade County and definitely beyond. We have three amazing guests coming on the program. First of all, we're going to have Ron Book. He is the chair of the Miami-Dade County Homeless Trust. And Mr. Book is going to be calling into the program in just a few minutes to discuss the dispute that is ongoing about funding with Miami Beach, the city of Miami Beach. So if you care about homeless matters in Miami-Dade County, or if you want to see the homeless problem in this county solved, you need to stay tuned. Then we will have an appearance from Ben Bright. He is the Airbnb press secretary for Florida. He's going to come on and give us a real update about the Airbnb wars, as I call them. The city of Miami Beach and the city of Miami have both declared war on Airbnb, and it's been a matter of public meetings for the last several weeks. And he will be joining us on the program in the middle of the hour. We missed him last week, but he's definitely making it on this week. And then we have the president of the United States, Teachers of Dade coming onto the program at the end of the hour. UTD is the largest union in the state that I know of. It's certainly the largest union in Miami Dade County, representing the members of a 300,000 student school district. I mean, it's very like one of the largest school districts in the country. And there is a bill pending in Tallahassee, which we will be discussing. That aims to curb unions from being allowed to represent membership when the less than 50% of the bargained uh, workers are members of that union. And that is a really big deal because there may be smaller unions that do not have more than 50%. Carla Hernandez-Matz, the president of the UTD, will be joining us on the program a little bit later. This is the part of the program where I get to speak with you, the listening audience, directly about issues of importance that affect us citywide and sometimes beyond. But today I want to really focus on a hyper-local issue that's happening in Miami Beach and highlight it because I think that it's important to note the public participation that has gone into Miami Beach's community and what it's facing today. There's this amazing institution that went for 20 years on Miami Beach called the Tuesday Morning Breakfast Club. It was an informal gathering of residents that met for nearly 20 years at the former David's Cafe 2 uh, over on Lincoln Road and Meridian. 
And then eventually it met at Manolo's. And now the restaurant uh, cannot accommodate them anymore. And they were shut down in January. Save Miami Beach leader Charles Schwab began the Tuesday Breakfast Club in 1996 without any formal structure, members, or fees as an informal chat. And it evolved into one of South Florida's premier nonpartisan venues for people to meet their politicians and hear directly from their mouths what they have to say and then discuss it with them in an informal setting for people who care about the future of South Florida. Well, it was a sad time in January when the club announced that it would have its last meeting, but they recently announced that they found a new location. So on Tuesday, March 28th, that's tomorrow morning, they will have former Miami Beach Mayor Matty Bauer and City Commission candidate Joshua Levy at the Porto Sagua restaurant. Porto Sagua, I believe, is at 700 Collins Avenue. Uh, it's great to see that they're resuming. Oh, I'm sorry. It, it, well, maybe that's not correct, but uh, it is great to see. Yes, it's 700 Collins Avenue, Miami Beach. Tomorrow morning, I believe they begin at about 8 a.m. And it is great to see that that kind of tradition is being expanded and reclaimed by residents and brought back for all of us to enjoy. But on the flip side, something very unusual is happening. A developer named Russell Galbutt is using his bakehouse restaurant, Mr. Frank Del Vecchio, who runs the Tuesday Breakfast Morning Breakfast Club, quote, as a ploy in his lawsuit against the city, referring to the bakehouse lawsuit against the city's regulations on live entertainment south of 5th. The Bakehouse Brasserie is at 808 First Street, which is owned by a Galbert relative and was cited for having a sax player when all that is allowed in that area is not amplified piano and strings. He's trying to negotiate the city's zoning power to regulate where entertainment is allowed, Del Vecchio said, and his latest gambit is enlisting David Kelsey to set up a breakfast club at the site that is the center of his lawsuit against the city. You know, this comes directly from Political Cortadito, from Elaine Del Valle. She is an Emmy-winning producer and she's a writer and it's just so unusual there's so much crazy stuff going on out on miami beach right now i don't know if you've heard mayor philip levine with his crazy talk of invading cuba and all that other stuff but right now residents need these kind of important forums and the tuesday morning breakfast club the real tuesday morning breakfast club which is meeting at porto sagua tomorrow morning i would guess at 8 a.m they're a very early uh, morning group um they will have one of the Miami Beach Commission candidates and the former Miami Beach mayor in the room. And I suggest that if you care about Miami or care about Miami Beach and you can make it there, do it. Get involved. The Tuesday Morning Breakfast Club is one of South Florida's premier nonpartisan venues. And as for the folks that are trying to politicize the actual nonpartisan breakfast club by mimicking it and creating their own, well, I say come up with a new name, please. Call it something else. Let people know that you're not the same folks. And I'm sure that a lot of people will be interested to see who you bring to your meetings as well. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, Podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back with Ron Book. Ron, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Grant, I really apologize for the delay. I was stuck in a uh, Senate Thomas Committee hearing on an article bill we called Bill, and we just got finished, so I apologize. Oh, no, that's perfectly fine. So, Ron, tell our audience a little bit about the Miami-Dade Homeless Trust, which you chair, and about what it does, because there's a big fight between the Homeless Trust and the city of Miami Beach right now, and I wanted to get right into it. Well, as, as you probably are aware, Miami-Dade County Homeless Trust is a 27-person board created by ordinance uh, to be the operator of the continuum of care and the implementer of our community plan, formerly known as our tenure plan, and homelessness. We are the policy-making entity that not only sets the policy for homelessness, but we are the, if you will, the overseer in the continuum, which means the $61 million that uh, is allocated to, for the fight this year and homelessness, we basically are the funders of that. So providers like the Salvation Army, the Rescue Mission, Lotus House, Camillus, Better Way, Citrus, are all contact vendors for the homeless trust as we work to end homelessness in our community. We are the what's known as a COC, a continuum of care, which has been recognized six times by both Republican and Democratic uh, secretaries of the Department of Housing and Urban Development as the best practice model in the country. And part of what we do is we are also the recipient of the food and beverage tax to end homelessness in our community, which applies everywhere in the county except Miami Beach, Surfside, and Bath Harbor. Right, so they're already not paying in. They're, they're not paying the food and beverage tax that every other establishment in the county pays. They do not, pay, they do not charge the food and beverage tax Miami Beach, Surfside, and Bath Harbor. And the reason they don't is when we adopted, the, when we worked for the passage and the adoption of the food and beverage tax 23 years ago, they were paying a disproportionate, they were charging a disproportionate number of pennies of resort taxes. So rather than fight that battle while we were trying to pass the bill, we left them out, always knowing that at some point in time in the future, we would need to come back and try to pick those cities up at a later date. That date and time is now. Now let me talk to you about what the city sent me saying that they're doing. They call it care coordination, a client management model that uses the client's strengths leveraged by additional resources to allow a client to live independently on their own. Uh, it looks to find a living structure housing model that suits the individual needs and capacity. And they, they say that this is their model and that that's what they're doing about homelessness. It, is that really working? Is that coordinating with what the Homeless Trust does? Or is that it, it, what's going on with that? Because they claim that that is the reason why they think they shouldn't have to contribute to the Homeless Trust. Well, look, do they coordinate with us? They do. But, you know, a divided community is less effective than a united community. And the resources that they put in is a fraction of what's needed. 
And while I would concede to you that they spend approximately a million and a quarter a year, one point, between 1.2 and 1.3 million a year, in their so-called coordinated efforts. And I don't want to be negative about what they do, but the fact of the matter is the reason we've been successful at reducing street homelessness in Miami-Dade County by 90% in 22 and a half years is because we've had a unified model that works. And there are over 200 individual homeless people on Miami Beach. And if they really want to end homelessness and remain in a sustained end of homelessness in our community and in, with emphasis on Miami Beach, then they will decide to get with the program and encourage the legislature to eliminate the exemption on the food and beverage tax for homelessness on Miami Beach, Southside, and Bell Harbor. So you're you're saying that they're pay, they're spending on Miami Beach about 1.75 million a year on homeless services. What would the tax contribution be if they were to be making the entire tax contribution, like everybody else in Miami Dade County? If we picked up Miami Beach, Southside, and Bell Harbor, it's a little over eight million dollars more of recurring revenue a year in the fight to end homelessness and to sustain that fight. It's not simply, what do you do for me today? It's the long-term solution. It's the long-term care. Listen, I, you know, I started doing this a long time ago. And it, you know, I'm the only place in county government where an outside guy helps to hire and dismiss the staff and hold people accountable. And that's because we run the homeless trust like a business. We run it smartly. We run it frugally. We run it in a, in a stretching the dollars as best we can. But Miami Beach continuing to run separate. Now, t- uh, just on the the theme of uh, uh, along that theme, uh, can you tell me what the administrative cost percentage of the homeless trust's expenditures are? We discussed this a, a couple of years ago when you were on the program. Uh, what is it for the the most recent year that you guys have figures on administrative costs? Yeah, the the money that goes oh, to my, other things besides. Oh my goodness, our administrative costs. Are, are, are a small fraction. I don't have the exact percentage grant, but it's a small fraction. Nobody has ever, ever, ever made an allegation that our administrative expenses are, are out of line with our operation. The fact is we put the bulk of our dollars right into what is needed, which is services to get people off the streets. We're not wasteful. I assure you that we stretch our dollars much farther than the people on Miami Beach are stretching their dollars. Now, I know you guys do a, a homeless uh, census every, like twice a year, right? That's correct. Um, HUD, requires, HUD requires all continuums in, in America to do a census once a year, sometime during the last 10 days in January. We, almost 19 years ago, decided to do a census twice a year. So we count in January, sometime during those last 10 days of the month, so that it's uniform nationwide because of the transitory population that we're serving. And then we count again in August. We want to know if there are population shifts. We want to know where our numbers are. We want to know where we may need to redeploy resources to make sure we're continuing the momentum of ending homelessness in our community. So what is our current homeless population according to the latest census? Uh, we're actually down a little from our from our last January count. It's just over a thousand people are living on our streets tonight. Right, still a thousand too many, but down significantly because when you think about it, Grant, as you well know, 
When we started 23 years ago, there were a little over 8,000 people living on our streets. Right. It's a, it's an enormous, enormous difference. I mean, I live downtown. Um, I think anybody who lives downtown and has been there for a while knows that there's been a sea change in the way that, that everything has been dealt with. So uh, how do you th- see the situation moving forward with the Homeless Trust? It, well, how, how do we? How is this going to come to a final resolution? Because obviously the trust needs the cash to keep more people in the housing first model that you guys established. But how well, how do we see what kind of resolution do you see? Model, touching on the housing first model, I, I, I'm remiss if I don't take at least 45 seconds on that. As you know, what housing first is about is it's about putting homeless folks, usually the chronic, into an apartment unit. Um, without any preconditions, we don't drug test them, we don't alcohol test them, we assign a case manager to them, and then that case manager is responsible for working them until they access services. Housing First is an expensive model, but but let's be clear, Miami Beach has allowed this one to get away for another year because their refusal to pass a resolution to the legislature encouraging an elimination of the food and beverage tax exemption for Miami Beach, Surfside, and Bell Arbor now it's been kicked down the can has been kicked down the road using commissioner Ariola's words we're simply kicking the can down the road they have at least said that they will entertain putting some amount of money more meaningful than what they're spending now into their budget and giving us an opportunity in a contractual agreement to work to uh, further reduce street homelessness on Miami Beach but we're a county we're a county-wide effort, and we've all got to be in this together. We all have to work to resolve this together. And what has worked so effectively is everybody's been at the table up until now together. But if we're going to finish the job and we're really going to end homelessness in Miami-Dade County, then everybody's got to be in the boat together, rowing the boat together, and rowing it in unison. And Ron, that includes people on Miami Beach. Ron, thank you so much for taking the time thank out of you your busy you. day to call in. Where can our audience find out more about the Homeless Trust? Or is there a number they can call to find out more information? They can call 305-375-1490 or 1491-305-375-1490 or 1491, which is the number at the Homeless Trust. They can also go to miamidade.com. Uh, uh, and go to the Homeless Trust prompt on, uh, on the Internet. Well, Ron, thank you again for joining me on the program. Thank you very much, Grant. We appreciate it a lot. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Ben Bright from Airbnb. Ben, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. Glad to be on. Thank you for having me. 
Well, we really missed you last week. Update our audience. What happened in the hearings with Miami Beach and the city of Miami? That represents 600,000 residents in Miami-Dade County out of the 2.6 million person total. Right, and the majority of, of middle-class Airbnb hosts are uh, within Miami-Dade County are hosting in either Miami Beach or the city of Miami. So uh, as, as uh, you've been noting for a while, Grant, you know, the mayor living in Miami Beach have been uh, quite hostile <laughs> to, uh, good way of putting to it. Airbnb. Yeah, <laughs> uh, to, to Airbnb hosts, his own residents. You know, in, in, in Miami Beach, you know, we... Um, you know, we don't really get it. Uh, unfortunately, you know, he hasn't really been willing to come to the table with us and just have a frank discussion about, hey, what, what's bothering you? How can we fix this? How can we make it happy? Um, you know, so, so that, that's been an issue for a while. Um, what happened last week in, in City Miami was the culmination of um, a, a few interesting developments. So out of nowhere, um, about a month and a half ago, Mayor Regalado decided he was going to introduce a very onerous short-term rental ordinance. It was quite literally copied and pasted from the short-term rental law on the books in Fort Lauderdale, which is very restrictive. Um, you know, we highlighted the fact that they had, you know, just copied, just copied the city's ordinance. Well, how did you know it was copied exactly? Word for word. You were very familiar with this ordinance in, in Fort Lauderdale. And we, um, well, A, you know, we, we recognized some of the language, but there were a few spots actually where they forgot to change the language from you know from Fort Lauderdale to Miami, and the uh, the effect date was actually a year and a half ago. Uh, so, so in other words, Fort if the Lauderdale city had just uh, taken the proposal and run with it, they would have tried to pass some legislation in Fort Lauderdale, huh? <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. So, what so went down? Because there was there was a press conference last week at City Hall, yeah. and uh, you know they said Mayor Levine went nuts at the press conference, but but what went down at yeah. City Hall, like during the actual sure. hearings? What were the decisions? Sure. So. So, so you know, the, the mayor and his administration ended up backtracking a bit and just proposing basically a resolution saying, hey, the laws we have on the books say that short-term rentals are illegal in residential areas. That is what they believe. So that was the purpose of the hearing, essentially uh, meaningless at the end of the day, but it was still quite meaningful to our hosts and, and basically everyone who was paying attention to this issue uh, because it, you know, it was really reflective of, um, how hostile Mayor Regalado is going to be towards our host, his residents, these you know, middle-class Miamians, uh, moving forward. So it was a very uh, long day. Uh, we had many, many dozens of hosts show up to advocate and share their stories because, unfortunately, Mayor Regalado has been unwilling to meet with them and, and hear those stories firsthand. Um, you know, he's, he's been very willing to listen to the hotel lobby, uh, you know, which he's made no secret of. Uh, and they've been able to influence this process. Uh, at the end of the day, they ended up voting three to two in favor of Mayor Regalado's uh, ordinance, which is unfortunate. But but what's really disturbing? Is, now hold on uh, a second. Which which were the two sure. commissioners that voted against uh, this air, anti Airbnb uh, law? Sure, uh, Commissioner Ken Russell, uh, whose district actually has uh, the that's most district two, Airbnb right? Host. And who else? Um, yeah, so he, he has most of the listing. And Commissioner Suarez. Okay. Commissioner Francis Suarez from District 3 and Commissioner uh, Ken Russell from District 2 vo- both voted against this bill to restrict Airbnb. And that means that the three commissioners who voted in favor of restricting Airbnb would be Keon Hardiman of District 5, uh, Willie Correct. Gort of uh, District 1, and Frank Carroyo of District 4. That That is correct. Uh, Hardiman took a very uh, harsh stance. Um, you know, his, his district is actually one where 
you know, we're, we're quite proud of the economic impact that Airbnb has had. Most of the neighborhoods that he represents, Little, little Haiti, uh, Overtown, have no hotels. Um, so they've never really benefited from economic um, effects of responsible tourism that Airbnb hosts in those neighborhoods are, are able to bring. So it was unfortunate, um, as, as well as that uh, Gortz and, uh, and Carollo voted uh, with the mayor as well. Uh, but what was really, really unfortunate was uh, both the mayor and the city manager said outright that they were going to pursue the, the, uh, the host, the middle-class Miamians who showed up that day um, to, uh, to speak out against that resolution. Uh, they had, they, you have to provide your address to prove that you're a resident, which they all did. Uh, and the city manager, Dan, Daniel Alfonso, said, we are now on notice for people who did come here and notify us in public and challenge us in public and that he is, quote, duty-bound um, to enforce the city code against them. So they're going to go after these people who showed up to exercise their democratic rights for free speech, um, which, is, which is disturbing. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to defend our hosts. You know, this is, uh, that, that's an un- unacceptable uh, stance to take, to go after these people who took time out of the day. Many took off work um, to, to show up at the city commission. Right. No, it's it's been become a really, really big harangue. We had super hosts, uh, the, the Smurfio uh, from Afrobeta. They're one of the destination hosts for Airbnb. He came on last week and talked about it. And, you know, a lot of people in Miami are coping with the high price of rent by Airbnb, by using Airbnb to help uh, pay the bill, especially for people that want to be able to travel. So it's really, uh, you know, it's a mystery to me why these politicians have taken up the the, the cudgel uh, for all of these hoteliers, especially in the city of Miami, where the hotel business really has a very big niche. You know, if somebody wants a five-star experience, they're going to go to a five-star hotel. Exactly. Um, but, I mean, it, how much it, do it, people it, exactly. really spend uh, from Airbnb in the community? Because, remember, like a five-star hotel, let's just say a regular hotel, an average hotel is about $250 a night uh, in Miami. Um so how much do people spend when they go at Airbnb, which is usually a little bit cheaper, like, uh, you know, anywhere from 70 to $150 a night? It, it, exactly. Uh, the, the typical listing price for an Airbnb uh, li- listing in Miami is, is about $100, $110. Obviously, that will, you know, sway up and down depending on, is there a big event in town or, or something of that order? Uh, but, you know, and, and this, these were the stories that our hosts were telling at this hearing. So we cater to... Uh, primarily a, a crowd who just can't afford Miami hotels, who wouldn't be coming to Miami if not for affordable lodging options. Now, you can still find high-end options on Airbnb as well. You know, if you want a full home and, you know, something extravagant, you know, in the $600, $700 range, you can't find that. Um, but, but the majority of people coming to Miami on Airbnb are, are, are doing so. Um, you know, maybe it's a private room, uh, you know, hosted by an empty master or something um, you know, outside of the downtown district that they can actually afford so they can come and enjoy this great city. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's you know, really what it's all about. It's a, it's not just a hotel stay. Airbnb is really a cultural exchange as well, and it opens right. up doors for people that otherwise wouldn't be traveling here, perhaps. Exactly, exactly. I mean, a lot of people, and I'm probably one of them, you know, I, I can't afford a $500 a night hotel room. Um, you know, so so for many years now, folks have been having to cross off Miami off their list of, of places that they want to come and authentically experience. There are other people who 
who, um, you know, no matter where they travel, they want to sort of live like a local. That's our slogan, actually. Uh, they want to they want to be in the neighborhoods. They don't want to necessarily be confined to downtown, even though downtown Miami is, is a wonderful place, I think. Um, so there's a lot of people like that who really, uh, you know, take to Airbnb. Um, you know, one issue the commissioners kept bringing up with you know, these, these party houses um, that, that, you know, crop up with, with short-term rentals, uh, you know, from time to time. Uh, nobody wants those. We, we don't want them. Certainly our hosts don't. Um, so, so the practical measures for everyone to work together and figure out, as we have in other cities like Chicago, like New Orleans is a great example. Like New York? Um, you know. Uh, well, still York, working on New York. New York is yeah. New York is very unique as is San Francisco. San Francisco, uh, right? But yeah, but but, but it, New Orleans is a great example. We came to the table with the mayor of New Orleans. They had very serious concerns about short-term rentals in the French Quarter. It was becoming too touristy. So we said, okay, you know, we're we're going to ban Airbnb listings in the French Quarter. We'll work with you on that. Um, you know, that that's that's what we'll give in order to make sure that everyone can be happy at the end of the day. And that's exactly what we did. The mayor of, of uh, New Orleans is now a huge Airbnb supporter, you know, because we were willing um, to make that compromise. And we were able to make that compromise because everyone came to the table in good faith uh, in, in a way that, unfortunately, uh, has not been happening in either Miami Beach or the city of Miami. You know, we're at the table and we hope that they'll join us. <laughs> Right. Well, that's the thing. It's all about cooperation if you want to continue. And I think that it's very interesting because people have said, well, Airbnb isn't just some leasing operation. It's actually an app, which I think is an important point, right? Totally. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, the, the majority of folks are, you know, particularly millennials, it's, you know, it's a mobile first generation, right? You're, you're kind of figuring this stuff off, uh, out um, while you're on the go. Um, you know, so that's uh, that, that's generally how we're able to, and, and we're just a platform. Airbnb is just a platform. Both of the mayors have tried to make it about, you know, them against Airbnb. That's really what it's not what it's about. Uh, it's them against their own residents. Over six thousand people combined in the in the cities of Miami Beach and Miami, who uh, who host on Airbnb. Many of them count on this revenue. So it, it, it's about them. It's about those folks who who again took time out of their day to show up at that hearing and. And, and share their stories and advocate for, for what they believe in. Um, unfortunately, that has not been able to happen in the city of Miami Beach, where um, these $20,000 fines sort of loom over everything, and folks are f- uh, afraid if they speak out that they'll be fined in a way that the that Mayor Regalado and the city manager in Miami have said that they're going to go after the host who showed up on Thursday. Well, Ben, thank you so much for calling in. Where can our audience find out a little bit more information about the struggle that's going on between Miami and Miami Beach and Airbnb and its many uh, hosts? Where can they find out more if people want to get involved? Sure. Uh, So I would recommend you visit miami.airbnbcitizen.com. That's where uh, that's kind of our our portal for um, for advocacy for our hosts. That's uh, Miami dot Airbnb citizen dot com. Miami dot Airbnb citizen dot com. You got it. Ben, thank you for joining me on the program. So happy to be on. Thank you. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we are back live with the president of the United Teachers of Dade. And she is calling us from Tallahassee, I believe. Is that correct? Hey, how are you? No, I'm actually in North Carolina, but I am out of state. Um, certainly uh, excited and very grateful for, to have this opportunity. So thank you uh, for having me on your show. No, it is my pleasure to have you on. Uh, Ms. Hernandez-Matz, tell our audience a little bit about the UTD and what it does in the Miami community, because it's one of the largest unions in the state. Is it not the largest union in the state? It is actually the largest teachers union in the entire southeastern part of the United States. Uh, and so we're very proud to have that title. And, you know, we do a lot of great things. We work with parents, we work with the community, and, of course, we work with teachers uh, to ensure that Miami-Dade County Public Schools has the strongest schools uh, in the state. Uh, and so we're always advocating for policy that makes sense and, of course, a way to support teachers because our teachers' working environment is certainly our students' learning environment. So we're here for the community to make sure that education is still accessible and is still key to making a great economy in our community. Now, there's something going on in Tallahassee that you guys are concerned about. It's a bill that's both in the, the Senate and the House. There's two different bills, right? Yes, that's correct. It is House Bill 11 and HB Senate 11. Bill 1292. Right. Yes, HB 11 and SB 1292. We are really concerned about these two particular bills because they are the first uh, union busting or anti-union bills that we see out of this session. Um, and uh, that's very disheartening to us because of the hard work that we do with our students in our communities every day. Uh, and it is a, a, certainly an attack to public education, to teachers, um, but we see that they're also attacking nurses and all public sector unions. Right. So now for our audience that's listening out there there's been a lot of similar attacks in northern states for example in uh Wisconsin um in Indiana they've they've created what we have here in Florida which is called the the right to work they call it the right to work but it's really the right to get fired without cause um so explain how <laughs> yes. I mean that's exactly what it is it's the right to be fired without cause no, Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you made that distinction. I like to call it work with no rights as opposed to the other way around. Um, And yes, it is similar. It is similar bills to what's happened in Wisconsin. Um, And what we see uh, is that they are using the same tactics. So in Wisconsin, they separated the firefighters and the police officers as well uh, to, you know, you divide and conquer. And so these two bills, um, they they um, exclude firefighters, police officers, and correctional officers, uh, three male-dominated um, unions, uh, you know, uh, uh, sectors. Sure. And um, they are specifically aiming uh, on attacking other working-class uh, unions. And so that's us. So th- um, that would be the and, teachers' uh, unions? What, what other kind of unions would be impacted by this? The, the nurses, so okay. SEIU. Ask me, which are the bus drivers, the custodians in schools, the cafeteria workers, uh, and, and, and many others. Any public sector um, union would fall under this bill. Right. So that includes like municipal workers, right? There's a lot of municipal workers yes. that are unionized. Yes. What are some of the other Postal big workers. unionized sectors in Florida? Um, so that have been excluded 
Well, um, I mean, you're saying that everybody except uh, the only thing that's not excluded would be the the correction officers, firefighters, and police. But who is? What, what are some of the other major unionized industries in Florida that would probably be impacted? So our postal workers. Right. Um, we have um, uh, CWU. Um, we have the communications course, workers union, me, right? Yeah. Communi- yes, communications, um, longshoremen. Um, so, you know, there, there are p- various, um, sectors, you know, that, that would be impacted. Obviously I focus on public education. So I know that there are other 67 counties with teachers unions, um, that would have to, uh, you know, try to figure out how they would work, uh, under these conditions. Right. I'm just trying to point out that this is something that cuts across all walks of life. And on top of that, even if you're not a member of one of these unions, Chances are you use or need or, or provided the services of these unions by somebody that's a member of these unions in some very critical fields, the nurse that, that takes care of you or the bus driver that takes you to, to work or, you know, you get the idea. I think that people hear union Absolutely. and they don't necessarily know enough about what that means anymore because there's been a reduction of people that are in these unions. So what are you guys doing in response to this bill in Tallahassee? Or these two well, bills? We're doing a couple. Well, we're doing various things. First of all, we want to thank you for helping us bring this issue to light. Uh, we're trying to make sure that the public understands precisely what it is that you're speaking about, um, getting the message out that union workers are really hardworking people, middle class. Um, the middle class was built, you know, through unions. And we're trying to keep the middle class alive. And we see a direct attack on the middle class workers, on unions, um, because they're trying to take away rights that have been fought for uh, for many years. And so we're doing that on one side. And on the other side, internally, we're trying to get to as many of our folks, uh, you know, our community, our teaching community, but also, you know, our parent community and let them know that we need them to support our unions. We need them to support our teachers and we need them to get on board if they're not on board yet. Right. It's an all hands on deck effort. Are you guys going to need a few phone calls to Tallahassee? Certainly. We need phone calls to Tallahassee. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy how fast uh, this has been, uh, you know, coming down. But HB 11 has already passed two committees and it's been set up. So it's going to be heard on the floor on the House side on Wednesday. So on Wednesday, they'll vote on it on the floor. On the Senate side, it's still taking a little bit longer. Um, but um, we see that there is a very focused attempt to try to get this, um, you know, just passed in a very quick and efficient manner. And so we're trying to do our best to mobilize our folks to let them know how important this is. And, of course, make sure that we're ready, um, you know, in case this bill does pass. So let's do this. We're going to take a very short break. And we're going to come back and talk about some of the other priorities of the UTD right after the break. Sound good? Sounds great. Thank you. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Carla Hernandez-Matz. She is the president of the United Teachers of Dade. Ms. Hernandez-Matz, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thank you. My pleasure. So let's talk about some of the other issues that the UTD is working on that affect not just the school teachers that you guys represent, but the many, many, many students. How many students are there in the Miami-Dade uh, district? I think there's about 300,000, right? We have over 350,000 yeah, 350, students, right. and we are the fourth largest uh, school district in the nation. So let's talk about some of the many issues that you guys are facing. What's What are the other problems on the UTD's plate, and what are you guys doing to fight for the teachers of Miami-Dade County? Uh, well, let's talk about students for a minute. So we are trying to make sure that we have some sound testing policies. We know that our state legislature has gone uh, too far too fast on state testing. Um, you know, we have seen a lot of implementation of testing that we have been against. We see the negative impacts that it has on students in terms of how they're being retained and where we end up ranking statewide. Um, nevertheless, uh, you know, Dade County Public Schools is, is doing very well, uh, far better than average in the state. Um, and so we're trying to reduce these tests because we believe that we can still have accountability and still show how our students are performing and growing. Uh, without having such a negative impact on their schedule. We want to make sure that children are learning in schools, not testing in schools. And testing is not teaching. And so we're trying to change those policies so that we can continue to have good, uh, you know, a whole holistic type of teaching in our classrooms where every child is learning and engaged and not just focused on testing. So that's one side. Um, but we're also worried about our annual contract teachers. There are some bills out there in state legislature that are aiming to take away um, our students, uh, uh, sorry, not our students, our teachers' job security, uh, trying to make them at will uh, public employees. And we know that our teachers um, need to have some type of uh, job security. I mean, these are the children, these are the teachers that take care of everybody's children. 350,000 students just in Miami-Dade County, um, and they should be respected. And we need to show them that we respect them and that we value them not only by how they're compensated, but how they're treated. And if you're telling a teacher that we cannot um, afford to give you any type of job security, it says a lot of things about the profession. It weakens us because it makes it seem like this is not a viable profession. And so that's the kind of employees that we're going to get. We're going to get people who are not interested in taking care of our children and educating them. And it's going to be just, you know, a, a, a turnaround, a quick turnaround type of situation, which is not good for public education. It's not good for kids. It's not good for our, uh, for our careers. And so we're fighting against that. Um, well, let me ask you about something that's happening on a bigger scale and that we're seeing uh, playing out in Washington, D.C., but that's going to quickly rebound to the schools where our children are educated, and that's the new uh, education secretary, um, the, the person who had the least votes from the Senate in United States history to get confirmed for any cabinet position, Betsy DeVos. Has there been any, any rebound, reverberation? Have, has anything started to come down the pipeline from Washington, D.C.? Absolutely. You can see it in uh, the president's budget. Um, he he um, submitted his budget about two weeks ago, roughly. 
Um, and we see that it impacts us in a very uh, negative way when they're taking away Title II funding, which is teacher training. So talk about, you know, our professional development, making sure that we have the best educators in the schools so that they're giving the best opportunities to our students. They're taking away teacher training from Title II, and they're taking away after-school programs. And, and that's really devastating because in a large urban uh, district like ours, we know that many of our children, because of the socioeconomic status, uh, because their parents, uh, you know, work, you know, long hours, need programs like after-school care. And so we're very concerned because we don't know what these children are going to do when they're unsupervised. We don't know what, you know, how, who's going to help them do their homework. Um, and these are things that, of course, a person that has never taught a day in their life, like Ms. Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education, she wouldn't know about these things because she's, those are not things that uh, concern her. And so we already see it coming down the pike. Absolutely. The budget reflects it. You show us your priorities through your budget and education is not a priority for the president. Right. I mean, this is this is the kind of stuff that people didn't think about when they cast their votes for the Republican nominee, amongst many other flaws that they overlooked. Uh, Many, many other flaws. what, is, what other issues do you see that are affecting everybody in South Florida because of the impact on their children in public schools? Are there any other funding cuts that are coming down the pipe from Tallahassee, perhaps? Or is Tallahassee maintaining budgets this year? Because I lived through this as a, a school child in the Miami-Dade County Public Schools. And literally, uh, the, the, the state would cut the budget. There was not enough money for copy paper. And then maybe a, a lottery uh, jackpot would get really big and they'd send us some, some copy paper and toner for the end of the, the semester. Are we seeing any of that happening in, in Florida this year or are the budgets going to remain fairly constant in Florida on a state level? Well, you know, so, so let's, let's talk about budget. So um, the state of Florida has funded public education at still at 2007, uh, you know, funding levels. It's 2017. You know, 10 years later, we're still trying to make the best with very limited resources. So, no, it is not okay. Um, and what we see is our governor, he, he did propose his budget. Uh, it seems a little bit better than it has been in the past. I mean, but com- to say it's a little bit better is comparatively speaking, right? Because, you know, we get, uh, we get happy to see anything that's a little bit over 2007 funding levels, which is not fair either. Um, but we uh, well, just just for our audience. Hold on, just for our audience to put this in perspective. Um, j- just to put it in perspective, you know, 2007 funding levels in this country, wages increased by the most, like for middle class people in the last decade, just last year, and and that was years of pent up wage increases that employers paid to employees as. Inflation changes things, you know, over time, the value of money gets lower, the purchasing power gets lower, and eventually it forces employers to give raises. So against the backdrop of this, now when you hear, hey, you know, 2016 was a banner year for wages, what's going on with teacher wages um, in last year's budget and this year's budget? Are are we seeing enough budget that teachers will get any sort of raise? Is this like, are are they frozen? What's going to happen with all of that? Well, we're certainly going to fight for it. I have to tell you that last year we got a 1% budget increase, 1%. And despite getting 1% budget increase, UTD fought hard for all of its bargaining unit members, and we were able to get teachers an average of 3.37% increase on a 1% budget increase year. 
So uh, we are certainly out there fighting the good fight. Uh, Playing the good fight, you know, advocating for our teachers who do, you know, God's work every single day, the most noblest profession. Um, and we have policymakers, legislators that do not support them and show it, show it through their actions, uh, including the budget, including policy that they're trying to get passed. Um, I can tell you that the House and Senate are very divided. Um, we hear that, um, you know, their budget is not going to match the governor's. And, of course, we're waiting to see what they come up with. Uh, but it certainly is sad to know that we have people, you know, our, our educating system that cares so much about our students, that does well, um, you know, far better than state averages. We are recognized in the country for the hard work that we're doing. And we have teachers that in this state we rank in the top, in the bottom, sorry, in the bottom 10 of the entire nation. Out of 50 states, we're always in the bottom 10 in teacher quality pay. Um, and so that's devastating to anyone who's thinking about joining the teaching profession, our workforce. And so we have to make things better. And we can't make things better without the public support, without the public knowing that they continue to try to attack public education, our teachers and our workforce, and try to dismantle it by attacking the union, the people who are fighting for the things that they need, the people that are fighting for the children, the people that are fighting for the things that our students need in the classrooms, um, and are fighting for those teachers who we know are underpaid, who well, we know me, deserve better. Let me just bring one other thing up, and this is, I mean, you said it, you said it. The most important reason to support more teacher pay is because it will attract better teachers to the profession, and better teachers will, you know, raise our children better it's not a rocket science deal you want to attract people that would go into other fields for every bad lawyer you could have an amazing teacher right <laughs> absolutely absolutely and but, you know but hold on a second all research indicates yeah the, but the, i mean there, it's Sorry. not just about like teacher pay and and those kids um oh man you, you, i lost my train of thought there go ahead you were gonna say something i'm sorry yeah, I was going to say, you know, this is, um, it's not rocket scientists. You're absolutely right. I mean, we see it on many levels. We see it in uh, the National Conference for State Legislators. They had a convening, they have a report. And of course, what they found is that in places where teachers are highly developed, so professional development, that training, you know, that in the budget was cut for teachers, all of that is important for educators to make sure that they are the best in their craft best you know in in their teaching profession and um and it showed that having strong unions and you know uh, a workforce that compensates them correctly all indicate that students do better because teachers feel good they're taking care of the students they're highly professionalized and they are providing the best opportunities for children and they know that they are um, revered in a very, uh, they're, they're revered. I mean, everybody honors them. It is like being a lawyer. It is like being a doctor. Uh, and we see that even on the international level as well. When you look at countries like Finland that everyone likes to talk about, they have a strong union country. They have strong teachers union who take care and advocate for the children and make sure that they are the best professionals that they can be so that they can provide those amazing opportunities for their students. And I wanted to mention this. This is what I was going to say. So tax season is coming up. And if there's one thing that teachers all tend to do, and I've noticed this every time I've worked with a teacher, I'm a mortgage broker, and I, I know these things. Teachers always take the tax deduction, almost always, for unreimbursed business expenses. In other words, teachers are always spending their own personal money 
to to buy supplies for the classroom. We got about a minute left. How can the state support these teachers so that these teachers don't have to dip into their pockets, but rather the schools have budgets that can support the kids' needs for education? Well, we certainly need to have a budget that gives funding to our uh, education uh, system, um, and we need to compensate our teachers correctly. You're absolutely right. The national average, teachers spend $500 out of pocket for school expenses. Why? Because teachers go above. They always want to make sure that the child that does not have the needs, uh, the means that they are taking care of, and they, that's what they do. We are nurturing just by trade. And so we need to do a better job. It is a shame that uh, this is where we are as a community, as a nation. Our nation cannot be great again if we make America dumb again. And we'll make it dumb if we don't support our public educators and our students. Well, that is about all of the time that we have for tonight's program. But it's been extremely, 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 extremely enlightening. <laughs> I have to say it a lot because it's been a great program. And uh, Ms. Matz, I'd like to thank you for coming on the program tonight. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I'm here to serve. So anytime you want me back on, I'll be happy to do it. Well, that is all the time we have. I'd like to thank Ben Bright. I'd like to thank Ron Book for also coming on the program. We have some great programming coming up for you next week, 7 to 8 p.m. This is the Only in Miami show.